let me tell you something. You are a lot weirder than you think you are. You know what? We all are. We're all repressing so many different sides of who we are at any given moment on any day. The reality is we sometimes wear masks. The reality is we always have a dark side. Whether we think we do or not, we're also always trying to fit in. You know, the stuff we we repress, that it sort of behaves like a stranger inside of us sometimes. And those are the times when we might say, I don't know what came over me. That's not who I am. Dot, dot, dot. If any of this sounds interesting to you, then I can't wait for you to tune into this episode of the show. That's right. We have the amazing, the New York Times bestselling, international bestselling author and a good friend of mine, Robert Green, on the show today. That's right. Robert Green on the Chase Jarvis Live show here at Creative Live. Robert's had a huge impact on my life with books like Mastery, really attuned me towards finding out the details underneath achieving something great in life, breaking it down piece by piece. Other books like The 48 Laws of Power. Uh, I did The 50th Law with rapper 50 Cent, which was a really inspirational and interesting book. And of course, in this episode, we're talking about his newest book called The Laws of Human Nature. So that little bit about our shadow selves, Robert goes deep in this episode about that side of us that we all are somewhat aware exists, but that we often pretend it doesn't exist so that we can basically get on with our lives. The book that Robert just dropped, The Laws of Human Nature, does an amazing job of not only exploring that darker side, but the positive side of our human nature that we often also don't take credit to. In a way, he's not only saying we're weird, but we're also much more interesting than we often give ourselves credit for. In a way, Robert is holding a mirror up to us so that we can confront who we really are. And he says, through understanding who we really are, all our weirdness and all our greatness, it's only through understanding those things that we can really maximize human potential and live the life we are meant to live. So in this episode, not only do we dig into those two opposite ends of the spectrum, those self-sabotaging beliefs and those empowering beliefs, but we cross the terrain of nearly everything in between. Robert also talks about a near-death experience that he had very recently uh, that left him a changed person, a renewed and incredibly powerful sense of gratitude for being alive, and also in a new position in life where he has to change a lot of mindset and a lot of behaviors. In short, he recently survived a very powerful stroke. So we cover a ton of ground in this episode. It's it's very attuned to the internal voice that we have. And to me, that's a that's been a, an important part of the show, the arc of not just this show, but the life of the Chase Jarvis Live show here on Creative Live. There's a lot of things we can do out there. There's behaviors, there's hacks, there's tweaks. So we can get inspiration from a lot of people. But if we can control what goes on in our mind and inside our body and reflect that honestly and accurately, and we can change the things that we know we need to change and double down on the things that give us power, what a way to unleash a true life. So we're going to get into the show. It's a powerful one. I hope you'll enjoy it. But before we do, just a quick word from our sponsor. Check this out, y'all. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live show is sponsored by Creative Life for Business. 
This is different than the regular old creative live. So whether you love, passionately love where you work or it's sort of like meh, or on the other side, if it's a creative wasteland and you want to inspire some change in the place that you work, you're not alone. Studies say that three out of four people, that's right, 75% of people say they're not living up to their creative potential at work. If so, I want to introduce you to Creative Live's newest product. It's called Creative Live for Business. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get access to all of Creative Live's content for your entire team and or entire company and maybe bring in some much needed energy and innovation to that team or company simply by going to creativelive.com slash teams. Now, Creative Live for Business is already in service of several of the top creative firms on the planet and a powerhouse list of many of the Fortune 100 top brands. These brands care about creativity and innovation. And you know what? These companies pay for this for their employees. So it doesn't matter if you're a team of five people, 55, or or if there's 50,000 people in the company. If this sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, either you can check it out or refer your boss to Creative Live by sending them to creativelive.com slash teams. Remember, the most forward-thinking companies, they prioritize things like creative skills, like design thinking, leadership, collaboration, wellness. And again, with Creative Live for Business, you get access to all that taught by some of the top instructors in the world all on Creative Live. So again, you can visit or send your boss a link to creativelive.com slash teams to learn more. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Chase, for having me. My it's pleasure. been a while. You've been on the show before. Yeah. It's been a couple of years. We, yeah. were, we were talking about a reunion, and A, congratulations, thank and B, you. thank you. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Well, um, well, we were, we always, I have this bad habit of talking with, with my guests before the cameras start to yeah. roll, uh, and we were talking uh, right before the, the camera switched on about the research that you do for yeah. your books. Yeah. Um, we were jesting about the, the work that went into researching the 50th law, a book you did with 50 Cent, right. uh, comparing uh, selling drugs on the corner, uh, you know, street corner in Queens with building entrepreneurship. Uh, I'm curious, your most recent book about human nature, right. what was the research about that book? What was, what was that like? Well, it was pretty intense. I, I, I say in the introduction that there's all this incredible material out there about who we are as human beings from all these different fields, but nobody has ever kind of combined all this knowledge into an in-depth study about human behavior. So I wanted to be that person, but you know, I got a little too ambitious for my own good. <laughs> it's a big book. It's a big book. I read over 300 books for the research. But there's amazing material out there. So I read a books about primates, about our chimpanzee ancestors, and how that has, that's still, you know, we're still wired in some ways like that. I read books about early humans, anthropology. Um, I read books about neuroscience, <coughs> about how the human brain is wired and the influence, like our relationship to our emotions and how the brain functions in trying to the clash between our thinking and our emotions. A lot of books on that. Incredible wealth of material from psychologists, not necessarily contemporary, but the golden period of psychology in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Some absolutely yeah. unbelievable stuff that'll just knock you, it's yeah. just mind-bending. Yeah. Carl Jung, Rolf Fairbairn, Melanie Klein. 
I was so excited to dive into that because people aren't really reading that stuff anymore, but there was so much great information. Yeah. And then, you know, reading books about economic behavior and how marketers understand human psychology and exploit it in some ways, and then vast amounts of history. So in every good biography, you're going to see living, breathing examples of human nature in action, yeah. sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad. And so I just took, it's like a giant pot, a stew, with like 12 different ingredients from all these different fields, and I'm trying to combine them and find common threads and sort of be the first person to bring all this amazing material together to say here in 2019, this is a report about who we are as human beings in as deep a way as possible. So, Well, profoundly impacted me, as I referenced earlier, Mastery was a, it was a, a book that came at the perfect time for me. Uh, and this strikes me, the laws of human nature strikes me very similarly in that we're at a time where, for example, Facebook, you know, are the phones and tablets and things that we're spending so much time with screens. Yeah. They are both having an impact on our day to day, but also they are a reflection of some of the things around human nature, for example. I also am, as you know, with my work with Creative Live, deeply passionate about um, unlocking the creator that's in all of us. So you covered a huge amount of ground as you just listed with the, the various areas of research. But I want to start with one thing. Um, it strikes me as you open the book, you talk both about this book isn't just about the psychology of other people and knowing when you're being manipulated or lied to or where someone's intentions might not be what they seem on the surface, but there's a bit about knowing yourself. Most definitely. So I'd like to read a passage and then have you respond to that, sure. if you would. Okay. The passage goes like this. Being able to understand more clearly that the stranger within us would help us to realize that it is not a stranger at all, but very much a part of ourselves and that we are far more mysterious and complex and interesting than we had imagined. And with that awareness, we would be able to break the negative patterns in our lives, stop making excuses for ourselves, gain better control of what we do and what happens to us. That to me is, I, did, I was expecting the book to be about other people. So yeah. I was like, oh gosh, we're gonna go on a, no. an inward journey here. Yeah. And I think for the people who are listening, like. A lot of people who pay attention to the show and to Creative Life in general are passionate about making impacts and changes in their own life. Yeah. And so could you respond to that quote sort of with that, that theme in mind? Well, the stranger within is an experience that I think everybody has had. So it'll come in a moment where you're suddenly so angry that you explode in front of your boss or your wife or your husband or whomever or your children. Um, it'll come in a moment where you suddenly buy a product that you never thought you were going to buy before, or you have an affair which is going to ruin your marriage or something, on and on and on. And afterwards, you will tell people, you will say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know what came over me. That's not really who I am. Whenever we see a politician or an actor apologize for committing some indiscretion, that's not who I am. But it is who you are. Because in our day-to-day -day lives, we're repressing so many sides of who we are. 
a lot of the dark stuff, a lot of the emotions yeah. that we don't want to face. We wear a mask, we're smiling, we're trying to please people, but we're repressing some of these deep emotions. And that part that we repress, that we try and hide, is like a stranger within us. And it acts out at times, in these moments where we can't control ourselves, in that flash of anger, in buying that product that you really don't need, in, in having that affair or whatever, the countless examples I go through in the book, that is definitely a part of you. And I want to show you that shadow dark side of yourself that you're not even aware of. And what I mean by that is, you are a lot weirder than you think you are. <laughs> you have this idea of yourself that's also a reflection of how other people see you. But just take a moment and think about your dreams. And think about the strange crap that goes on in your dreams. Yeah. All the weird behavior, the violence, the aggression, the sexual stuff, the things you don't act out in your real life. That, those dreams reflect something that's going on in your unconscious. It's a part of you. You are a much more interesting person than you give credit for because you're trying to act, you're trying to fit into the group and be what other people want you to be. Yeah. And, you know, we all want the power to change ourselves, right? That's why self-help books do so well. Yeah. But you can't begin to change yourself in any meaningful way until you confront who you really are. I want you in this book, I'm holding up a mirror to you. I'm holding up a mirror to your self-absorption, to your narcissism, I say we're all narcissists, yeah. to your aggressive tendencies, to the envy that you feel, to all of that stuff. You can't, you know, if you go out in public and you don't look in a mirror, your hair will, you're gonna look really weird, yeah. right? <laughs> you can't begin to like improve your looks until you look in the mirror. You can't begin to change yourself until you look into that mirror of who you really are all that other stuff that you don't want to confront. Yeah. And I'm like giving you a big punch in the face, like a Mike Tyson punch, <laughs> yeah, right. of here's, this is who you are. You do have these tendencies. In writing the book, I have a chapter on narcissism. And I've had this weird feeling as I'm writing it, I'm going, Robert, you know what? You are a narcissist, you know? Let's, let's deal with it. It was kind of a shock to me. And since then, it's been clearer and clearer that I am a narcissist in many ways. And this is what the book supposedly will have the same kind of function as it did to me, you know. Yeah. I had to confront the fact that I feel envy. You know, we were talking about Ryan Holiday. Good friend of both of ours, yeah. Yeah, and he was my apprentice for many years. And now sometimes I'm always reading Ryan Holiday's name is in the news everywhere. He's getting, he got a bigger advance than my book got it. You know, the, my former apprentice. I feel pangs of envy, I have to confront that. Yeah. You know, I have to understand that I'm a human being and I have flaws and weaknesses. So that's sort of the, the point of this book in many ways. That's one half of it. Yeah, it, I was, well, if you can just, you can just flip one, you at home <laughs> listening can flip through the table of contents of this book and realize that you're in for a ride. When you have a whole chapter on like, you are a narcissist, I think yeah. something, it's, it's, that's the, the title in effect. Um, and yet you approach these things, not with kid gloves, but with a gentleness, like, or maybe it's not gentle, it's more factual. It's just like, this is matter-of-factly, hey, if, you're, if we're gonna change ourselves and we have to, you know, self-awareness is a really powerful tool, then you're gonna have to, we're gonna have to peel back some layers. It feels a bit like therapy, 
with um, that you can do without leaving your home. <laughs> well, it is it is gentle in the in the in the sense that I want to make you be much more tolerant of people around you yeah. and not so judgmental. I want you to approach even the people that you don't like that repel you with a degree of empathy and even love that you want to understand them. Yeah. People are so quick to judge and I want you to step back and instead of trying to judge and categorize people, understand who they are, get into their soul, their yeah. psyche. Yeah. But you need to do the same for yourself. You need to accept the fact that you are an animal, that you are descended from primates, that you have emotions you can't control, and there's nothing bad in it. Stop even judging yourself, yeah. but accept that you have these qualities. And once you accept that you are a narcissist, and it's not a negative thing because practically everybody out there is self-absorbed, particularly yeah. in these days, once you come to terms with that, then you can begin to change it. But hating yourself and beating up yourself is not going to lead to any kind of meaningful change. Yeah. That I think, was, if I'm not mistaken, the chapter immediately after the narcissist one is, is empathy, or the section of the book, it just goes, it, it, helps, it helped me understand that if, if you can imagine the, or understand the shadow sides of yourself, wouldn't you, wouldn't, doesn't that help you understand the person who is your boss or the person in the car at the other side of the traffic light that you're, you're not approving of what, right. what they're doing and how they're handling themselves. Um, what, what kind of research did you do for the empathy side of the book? Well, there are a lot of great books on the neuroscience of it. I, did, I delved into that a little bit in Mastery, mm -hmm. in the discussion about mirror neurons, mm -hmm. and the work that I did with V.S. Ramachandran, who was one of the people I interviewed for Mastery, a brilliant neuroscientist. And mirror neurons are basically an incredibly amazing thing. It's how we're able to look at another person and literally put ourselves in their position. And there's a neuron that we possess, that some primates possess, that other animals don't have, that allow us, to, when somebody picks up an object in our mind, we're doing the same thing, although we're not actually picking it up. And it allows us to imitate other people and to learn how to make things. You know, originally that's how we learned how to make tools, etc. Humans going back hundreds of thousands of years before the invention of language, we're actually a very weak species. We're physically weak. We survived because we were social. We worked in groups. And if you can imagine being in a group where there are all these predators and dangers around, but you're not, you don't have invented language yet, you need to understand people on a nonverbal sense. You need to be able to pick up their moods and their emotions to be able to act in a group as one. We have that power. We have that telepathic power to get inside the perspective of other people. Yeah. And the block of that is we're so immersed in our smartphones and our technology and social media that we're not interacting enough with people. We're too self-absorbed. I want you to get out of that inward look that you have that's actually making you miserable, you out there, mm -hmm. because you're not really connecting to people around you. As a social animal, that feeling of loneliness and being disconnected from people is really, really depressing. I want you to get out of yourself and direct that love that you have for yourself and attention into other people. And you have these incredible tools at your disposal for getting inside other people's minds. I. I was talking about it last night in the, in the talk that I gave for LA Live Talk about how I operate in the world 
when I'm out at Rite Aid or supermarket or whatever, I'm looking around at people and I'm trying to say, what, what is it like to be them? And I practice it all the time. It's kind of a writer thing. What is it like to live in their, their kind of house? They don't maybe have as much money as me. They drive you know, a different kind of car. They have this, these problems and that problems. And I really, with my imagination and a lot of effort, I try and put myself in their shoes. I've been doing this for years, and I can tell you that I can get a really powerful, intuitive, visceral sense of what it must be like to be other people, you know? This is a tool that everybody has, not just me. It's a muscle that you have that you can exercise if you find yourself interested enough in the lives of other people. We said earlier that you were a lot weirder and more complicated, you chase, yes. and me, than you imagine. Well, people are. Yeah. People are weird. They have their own dreams and repressed desires and things. But you're Trauma not, in their life. Trauma, yeah. childhood yeah. traumas. Yeah. Yeah. They're like characters in a movie. They're like something out of Dostoevsky or some Tarantino film. Yeah. But you don't think of it that way because you only see you know, what they present to you. Yeah. I want to make you fascinated by the people out there and motivated to try and move inside their worlds and use your empathy. The mirror neuron is such a powerful tool for that. I, I have an example in my own life as a photographer. Um, maybe you can tell me how I can do more to strengthen this muscle and connect with others. Um, when I, well, first of all, in conversations like this, yeah. If I look at you and I don't talk after you're done talking and I nod my head three times, you will keep talking. Yeah. And if I just make make it look like I'm I'm in I'm cartooned to you and if if like I just find that that is a a signal, a nonverbal signal that right. without fail. And I learned this from Vanessa Van Edwards, without fail that you will keep talking. Yeah. Even if you don't have anything else to say, you'll right. fill the space. And so there's a, almost a social contract. As a photographer, if I right. want, uh, I, it, it's fiction to think that you don't actually impact your subject if you're gonna shoot a portrait. Oh, sure. If I come in and the music's loud and my energy is very high, I will watch the energy of the other person raise yeah. if I come in and I talk quietly and we go sit in the corner of the studio. Yeah. I get a completely different mood yeah. out of the subject. And so I think part of the takeaway is whether you think you are impacting your environment or you're not, because of these mirror neurons, we bring right. energy to a situation and it impacts the, it impacts the environment. Right. Is this, you talked about using this as a muscle. Is the act of strengthening the muscle just doing the exercises that you do at Rite Aid, or how can people like learn that this is a, basically, I'm, I'm trying to get at self-awareness. When do you become self-aware enough that you, that this is a thing that you possess? What do you do to, to, to strengthen it? Because it's gonna build empathy, right? The more you can yeah. put yourself in the shoes of others. Well, the problem is you're, in your day-to-day -day interactions at the office, for instance, you're not paying attention to that colleague. Yeah. You're tuning them out because you're more interested in your own problems and your own ideas. Your own, you've got your own life to lead. And so you're, you're sitting there in a conversation, but you're not listening to them. You're just, you have that internal monologue that's playing. So step number one is to be aware that you're continually listening to a voice in your head. 
And that voice is really, really damaging you. Yeah. It's, it's blocking you from experiencing the world and from experiencing other people. So I'm not asking for radical change in your life. You're not overnight going to become this, this incredible, empathic, visionary person. I want baby steps. So I want you, the next day after you read my book, to go into that interaction with that guy in the, in the you know, in the, in the uh, what do they call it, in an office in your little your, cubicle? Your little cubicle next yeah. door. <laughs> and okay, now I'm gonna force myself to turn that off just for five minutes. And I'm gonna have an exercise where I'm gonna see if I can glean some bit of information from that person that I never gleaned before. I'm gonna pay attention to his or her body language and see something about them that I never noticed before. I'm gonna actually listen to something. I'm gonna ask a question about their upbringing and their childhood. I'm gonna find one little detail that I never noticed before today. And then after that, you can go back to your internal monologue, which will naturally take over. Yeah. So I want you to practice this on a day-to-day -day basis with the most banal, boring people in your life. That spouse who you completely ignore, who's so familiar to you that you never pay attention to. You know, you can live with somebody for 30, 40 years and you don't really know them. Yeah. Suddenly, I want you to do an exercise where you actually try and find something out about her that you never realized before. And people are giving out all of this information. Sigmund Freud said that we ooze every day signals of our inner life through how our hands, through how we hold something, through how we smile. You're missing all this information and I wanna wake you up, you're in a dream. Yeah. It's like the matrix, I'm giving you the red pill, I'm waking you up to observing all of these signs that people are emitting that you're simply not paying attention to. Yeah. And from that step of now you're listening to people, maybe you'll start getting interested in them, more fascinated. You'll realize, hmm, there's some, some things going on that, that are kind of exciting. It's like a movie in a way, yeah. right? And if you get spark that and you get go deeper and deeper, that muscle will start coming back to life. It's all about instead of being inner-oriented, being outer-oriented. And you might find it a drag or, or a, an exercise, but it's actually therapy. If you've ever experienced a moment in your life where you were doing sports or exercise, or you were reading a book, or you were writing something, or you're seeing a movie, getting outside of yourself and being at one with what you're doing is incredibly therapeutic. Yes, yeah, the flow state, for the example. The flow state. Yeah. And this is a flow state that you're gonna have in your boring daily social interactions. Very powerful. What, when you think about, um, you said two things I wanna go back on. One was that this voice inside of us is damaging. Yeah. Um, I'm an advocate of self-care. I've talked a lot about some of the dark times that I've had. Uh, and how mindset I've learned is the most important thing for me. For me, and what and mindset is basically directly proportional to the voice that's in your head. If you're giving yourself loving messages, and so that you oriented your comment around this is doing damage to you. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and give people is this this practice that you're talking about is that a vehicle to change that voice or how, how should we think about the voice in our head? I I just I'm very. I'm passionate about it, and I want to hear your your. Well, the chapter that I wrote about that that's more relevant is, is a chapter I had about attitude. I call it 
alter your circumstances by altering your attitude, something like that. Yeah. It's about self-sabotage. And so that voice inside of you becomes literally who you are. Yeah. It's a reflection of your attitude towards life, right? Yeah. So if you have a negative, kind of hostile, closed, restricted attitude towards life, that voice is always going to be critical about you and about other people. And being critical about you and other people is narrowing the lens of your eye. I say your attitude towards life is like an aperture of a camera, which mm -hmm. is an apt uh, metaphor here. <laughs> yes, well played. And that aperture is closing dependent on how closed you are to experience. If you're fearful and avoidant and hostile, that thing can narrow down to a tiny, to the slowest f-stop that there is, right? Yep. But if you're open and expansive and accepting and tolerant and kind of open to experience, it opens to the widest aperture. And you, how you look at yourself and how that attitude is will determine what you get in life. So imagine that I'm someone with a kind of a hostile, slightly angry attitude towards people or towards life in general. And I approached you, Chase, we've never met before. Almost immediately, you get that sense, Robert is kind of a hostile, critical person. And you get defensive, right? Mm -hmm. And I pick up your defensiveness. And I go, damn, he's being defensive. It makes me even more hostile and even more defensive and even more closed. So you create your circumstances by the attitude you project towards people. Yeah. If you could alter that attitude, if you could make it more expansive, you'll have a different effect on people. But I know I meditate a lot every morning, and I hear that voice inside of my head. It's a voice that's so damn annoying, I'm trying to turn it off. And that voice is always filling me with anxiety. You didn't answer that email. You didn't, you know, maybe this person took your comment the wrong way. It's filling me with all kinds of, um, my ego, D did I get enough applause last night? Were people really excited by what I did? So I become aware of that voice, and then I realize, what is that? What is that voice? Where, where is it coming from? It's not really me. You know, this is not who I am. I could shut that off. I could change it. I could realize that who cares if their applause is this way or that? Why do I have to be anxious while I'm meditating about what my mother said on the phone the other day? I can turn that off. So altering that voice and altering your attitude is an immensely powerful tool in your toolkit that I'm trying to instruct you how you can use. It's, I feel like that is uh, perhaps the biggest key. You said, you, you mentioned in, in my life, uh, it feels like the biggest lever, rather, in my life for uh -huh. making the things that I want to have happen and feeling, you know, by, by extension the other way, if I don't feel great or if I'm not in control of that lever, feeling like a cork in the tide just bouncing around. Um, you know, I'd like to go one layer deeper. You talked about meditation. Mm -hmm. I'm also a, a big fan and being at first aware of that voice and when that voice comes in, just bringing it back to in you know, either the breath or the mantra or whatever. You mentioned meditation. Are there some other things that you do to help steer this voice or be aware of it? Um, I don't want to get too tactical, but you just since you mentioned it, I was curious. Well, um, is talk therapy another thing? Is like what, what? What do you recommend? Well, therapy's great. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, but really, it's 
like it's so familiar to you it's so much what your daily experience is you need to have some distance so what I'm doing when I meditate uh, because that's where I do most of what we're talking about here and then it carries over to my day-to-day -day life yeah. and I'm a huge advocate of bringing meditation into your life yeah. in some form or another I don't know what where I came up with this metaphor but I, I think it's sometimes with the computer where you can you try and push an image away I try and push in my mind myself away that voice I try and get some distance from it as I'm meditating and if I it's very difficult because telling yourself I'm getting distance from that voice is the, the voice, voice. <laughs> it's always there it's so annoying but if I can create that much of distance it's an amazing feeling I can't tell you what that is it's because I'm actually observing myself yeah in action I'm observing that voice as it happens with a tiny little bit of distance okay and with that distance now when I'm outside of meditation and I'm talking to my wife or I'm dealing with friends on the phone I can get that little bit of distance I can catch myself getting anxious or my ego is intervening or all the other little things that that voice does you know I can I can see it happening yeah. But I want, I'm a big advocate of getting a little bit of inner distance and detachment so you have the power to observe yourself. I don't know how else I would have done it through, except through meditation. Yeah. But you know, therapy could, be, could yeah. be a powerful voice. Another way you can do it is using a journal, which is something that Ryan Holiday advocates a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So in a day-to-day -day level, you write down at the end of the day your thoughts and experiences. Now you think, well, what, how's that going to help? Well, Two days later, you go back and you read it. And it's like you're reading about somebody else. You're reading about your thoughts have been objectified on a piece of paper. Yeah. And now you can look at it with some distance. Or you look at it a month later, and yeah. it's like, wow, was I really thinking that and feeling that? Yeah. And you can see that other self inside of you in action. So that is another powerful tool you can use. So if, is what we're really talking about here emotional intelligence? Is that what you're advocating? And I'm just trying to like in the most simple, use the word banal earlier, because there's a lot of heavy psychology. There's a lot of like, again, your relationship with yourself, your distance from it, the inner voice, all these. Is it just, is it emotional intelligence? That's a huge part of it. Um, so some of the things that I learned from neuroscience is that we're largely governed with, by emotions. Emotions are the, one of the most ancient parts of the brain. Our brain exists on a stem from the higher cognitive abilities are actually literally higher up in our brain. And the limbic lizard part of our brain is lower down on the stem. Basal ganglia. Yeah. yeah. And emotions are extremely ancient. Lizards have emotions, a fear emotion. So they go back millions of years, right? We have much more complex emotions. We have shame. We have depression, we have elation and joy, things that other animals don't experience. But the thing about emotions is that they occur in a more ancient part of the brain that's not connected to our thinking, to our rational part. They operate in different systems. So we don't have the capacity to understand where our emotions come from. They occur to us and later we think, oh, I was angry for this reason 
or I was attracted to that woman for this reason. But it's not the truth. You don't have rational access to your emotions. They're occurring on a level that's too primitive. You're thinking after the fact. So I want you to challenge yourself sometimes. You're angry, you're pissed off for some reason. Step back, gain that little inner distance and go, why am I angry? Question yourself. Is it because of that person that sent that email? Or is it because of something that I'm carrying along with me from my childhood, where I hate authority figures because I didn't like my father, and this boss said something that really riled me, but it's really nothing to do with the boss. It's issues I'm carrying with me. Yeah. To have some distance and question where your emotions come from. That is true emotional intelligence. Yeah. And that'll give you the ability to not always react. So you're really angry about somebody who didn't get back to you, write an angry email, don't send it. Write it, but don't send it. And look at it the next day and you go, well, I don't think I don't need to do that. That's kind of a little too strong kind of thing. Yeah. So the ability to analyze your own emotions is so powerful and important because you're not actually doing it. Yeah. You're reacting. Your emotions are sending you on a ride. Like you're at Disneyland and your emotions are sending you on Mr. Toad's wild ride <laughs> up and down here and there and you're bumping into people and offending them. I want you to get some real access as to where they come from. And then you can, you know, you can stop that emotion from governing your life. I'm not against emotions. Emotions are a beautiful thing. It's what makes us creative, what makes us fall in love. And actually being rational is, is a desire, is an emotion, because you actually love the process of thinking, etc. Emotions are beautiful, but you need the ability to do what our brain doesn't naturally give us, which is the ability to have intelligent access as to where they come from. Let's go right into creativity because you, you was the perfect natural segue there. Okay. For you know, this audience is largely creator, entrepreneur oriented, and I always like to provide a, a vehicle or a lens to creativity. How do you think that mastering your emotion, creating a little bit of distance and awareness of ego and self-talk, and what's the fundamental role that creativity has connected to human nature? Well, um, it depends on you know, your, your, your form of creativity. But, you know, for a writer, for instance, the ability to get inside other people and understand them is absolutely essential to be able to capture and write a good character for a movie or a novel or a play. Um, you know, as a photographer, understanding the psychology of the people that you're photographing, and who they are, now gives you the access, the ability to bring out something about them that's never was captured before on a camera. So understanding people's psychology, because we are a social animal and any kind of creative venture is somehow interacting with people, will greatly enrich you know, the soil, give you many more ideas to work with. I also talk in the book about our shadow, our dark side. Yeah. And I say that this dark side, something that we normally repress, has tremendous creative potential. To me, all of the great artists in life are actually more attuned to their dark side, to those ugly, violent, unrestrained emotions that are inside of that stranger. And they have access to that, and they bring that into their work. You know, a Robert Maplethorpe, or 
or you know, some other artist that shocks us or offends us, or a great novelist. They have access to that dark side in themselves, and they're able to bring it out into their work. So you want to not be afraid of your dark side as an artist. Yeah. You want to mine it. You want to be aware of your aggressive tendencies. You want to be aware of your narcissism. You want to be aware of all of those dark emotions that you're afraid of showing to the world because there's incredible rich material. They come from your unconscious. They're the things you're repressing. And your unconscious is so much freer than your conscious mind. The unconscious mind is continually making associations between things that are kind of not normally associated with. And that's really what a great artist does. And that's creativity in action, right? Associating two things that weren't used to not be associated. Yeah. Well, you want to be have, able to have access to those kind of unconscious processes. And going deeper into yourself and becoming more aware of how your unconscious operates and some of these darker impulses will give you incredible material. I love books and movies, etc with a little bit of an edge, a little bit of anger to them, you know? A little great, I, yeah. I always operate with an edge of anger when I write a book. I'm pissed off about people in, power, in Hollywood being so hypocritical, so I write The 48 Laws of Power. It's my way of urinating on them, <laughs> right? And putting my scent on them, right? I want to have a little bit of an edge. You translating your own anger and your own pissed off emotions into your work is extremely powerful. It's what will we'll really communicate to people because we have to repress our anger so much in daily life that we look to artists to express it. Yeah. You know? So that's sort of one of the most important chapters in the book about the creative process. Let's, let's flip that script on its head because you also talk a lot about beauty and awareness and joy, some of these positive emotions yeah. that also can come through the awareness that you have of yourself, the chapter, the little uh, blurb that I read as we opened earlier about with these, this awareness, you can actually cultivate more joy, cultivate more access. Right. The access to these emotions is not only negative, when that's, it's a product of, and a process of healing and integration. And so can you talk a little bit about how the human nature, there are some kind and joyful aspects to it? Almost oh, definitely. A lot of it comes through self-awareness. So let's take the ugliest human emotion that exists, envy. Envy, nobody ever wants to admit that they're envious. Yeah. It's really, it's a sign that we feel inferior and, it, and it's an ugly emotion, right? And it leads to kind of sabotaging passive aggressive behavior. Well, you can flip that envy around into something joyful and actually powerful and creative once you're aware that you have these tendencies. So you're always comparing yourself to other people and to what they have and feeling envious for them. You know, Ryan Holiday got a bigger advance than I did on my book. You can change that very quickly. First of all, you can stop comparing yourself to people who have more and you can compare yourself to people who have less. Say, well, actually, I have it pretty well in life. I'm not homeless. I have written a book. I've gotten, made a lot of money. So maybe compare myself to other people. What does that build in you? It builds gratitude. Gratitude for, for what you have, which is emotion you're not really in getting much in life. Most people nowadays are so 
kind of resentful about everything else they don't have. Mostly social, they're getting all their inputs from yeah. you know, the envy of, that they have in their social feeds or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I want you to build this emotion of gratitude for the fact that you're alive, that you're healthy, that you have a career, that you have a mind, that you can do all of these powerful things, you're not paying attention. The other thing about envy is there's something called schadenfreude, which means you take joy in other people's pain, which is a natural human reaction. If our friend says that they got fired, we pretend, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, but deep inside, there's a little bit of joy that they're not doing so well, you know? It's very human. I want you to practice the opposite of that, what Nietzsche calls mitfreude. And instead of, when somebody tells you some good news about their life, I want you to feel their joy as part of your joy. You're happy for the happiness of other people instead of feeling resentful. You can build these kinds of emotions into you. Instead of comparing yourself to people who are powerful and getting angry and bitter, why not use that emotion to try and emulate them and to try and figure out why they're successful and maybe incorporate some of their habits and compete with them and try and become a better person. You can flip envy into all of these powerful, positive emotions. I have a chapter on grandiosity and the dangers of what success will do to you and how it'll lift you off out of reality to this little bubble world where you think you're a god. Well, grandiosity is actually a good thing for you once you learn of its negative possibilities. Feeling ambitious, like you want to create something really important and great, is a very powerful emotion that you need to access. You need to stop feeling guilty for your ambitious, grandiose tendencies. But instead of turning it into illusions where you imagine you're God, channel that energy into actually making something great, yeah. to actually making a great work of art or a great film. Every one of these negative emotions can turn into a joy, an incredible positive thing. You know, the dark side can turn into your creative energy, you know, yeah. on and on and on. I take the last chapter is about death, confronting mortality. Perfect. Death is the absolute worst possible reality for us humans that we're aware of it. And I try and show in this book that being aware of death and confronting your mortality is actually can be the source of incredible calmness and incredible peace and incredible ability to connect to other humans. You have the power to turn even that thought into something joyful and what I call sublime. It's a powerful chapter. Yeah. A friend of mine, Michael Hebb, who's also been on the show, recently wrote a, a book called Death Over Dinner, confronts that exact thing, using the table as an opportunity to, not just to, to approach this topic unannounced, but to make a plan to have a conversation about it. And as, as I was reading I that read chapter, that. It's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful book. It gives you a bunch of just examples on how to address that conversation. And when, as I was reading that <clears throat> in uh, The Laws of Human Nature, I was reminded of it. It'd be a great, great reference text for you. How have you taken your own advice? You've, you've done so much research. You've just written a beautiful book, a treatise, like you said, of assembling all these different thinkers into something distilled it into what we can take daily action on. How have you, how, well, what, how, um, you've been taking your own medicine for a while. What have well, you noticed? Well, yes, I have. But um, about five months ago, I suffered a stroke. Um, it nearly killed me. I was driving, and if my wife hadn't 
noticed something odd going on, I would have gotten into a terrible accident or it would have taken a long time for me to get to the hospital. I would have permanent brain damage. I was in a coma, so I had a, a near-death experience. And here, it was ironic, because two months earlier, I had written a chapter about death, and I wrote about making you aware of it, and it was kind of an intellectual exercise, and here it came right home to me. So I had to learn a valuable lesson. I had to learn that what I wrote was actually quite true that being this near-death experience made me extremely appreciative of just the fact that I am alive. But I also have to deal with tremendous amounts of impatience. I still can't do basic daily things. I can't sh tie my shoes, for instance. I get so frustrated that I want to take my walking cane and beat people up or you know, knock something out. I get so angry. I have to calm myself down. I have to constantly aware, make myself aware that in a year I will be swimming again, I will be running again, I will be able to travel. So I have to get that emotional intelligence that me, arrogant writer, was proposing for you. Man, it came gobsmack into my face. I have to learn how to control my impatience, my frustration, etc. I'm also, my narcissism was you know, I don't like the fact that I have to go out in public and look like I'm this person that can't walk, that can't straighten his back. It, it just gives me an ugly feeling. That's the narcissist in me. Why should I care what other people are, how they view me? So all the things I wrote about, ironically enough, maybe the gods had planned it that way. I have to confront in my daily life because of this stroke that happened. And I have to learn to see it is occurring for a reason, you know, that it's going to strengthen me, that it's going to make me confront my own shadow, my own weaknesses. So that's part of been the main thing of why I've had to take my own medicine, you know. And do, do you feel better off having written the book? And could you imagine a world where you didn't have, you hadn't done the research and hadn't realized all this stuff about yourself? Would you be in a worse off position? Yeah, I mean, on a banal level, the five and a half years, the stress, I worked every single day with, on my birthday, on Christmas, um, probably led to my stroke. You know, so people ask me, Robert, would you have, if you had it all over again, would you have not written the book and then not had the stroke? Would you be better off then? And they go, no, because I wrote the book and it's a tremendous feeling of satisfaction for myself. And I try and tell people, um, Abraham Maslow, the great psychologist, calls it peak experiences. Getting into that flow and writing a book and achieving something is a greater pleasure than I can ever get from my swimming or my hiking or all the other things that I had in life. So, you know, uh, I can't remember what your question was. No, no, you're, you're, you're getting it. It's like if you hadn't had that experience, oh. or if you hadn't written the book, would you be worse off? Would, would you? I would be worse off because I've, I've always wanted to write this book. I've, for six years, no, for, I'm sorry, for 20 years, I've been studying people, I've been consulting, I've amassed all this knowledge, and this is a book I had to write, I had to express, I had to get out of me. You have something inside of yourself, you people out there. It's, it's something that you want to express. Every human has that. Um, and if you don't ever express it, 
you're going to die someday with a feeling of regret. It's going to live inside of you and it never got out. And it's causing you some unhappiness and depression. So getting out your own thoughts, your own feelings, and putting them in a book or in some work of art or in some business is actually a very healthy phenomenon. So I was able to get all this information and knowledge that I wanted to share with the world. I got it out, and I think I'm very happy that I did. I don't regret it at all. So what you talked about self-awareness at length, and you talked about um, using the powers that you have to observe yourself and, and to make changes. There's also, in the, in the beginning of the book, you, you, I don't know what you called the but the intro makes basically five promises. Like, in this book, you're going to, you know, first, second, third, fourth, fifth. Um, one of them was you're going to be able to use what you learn in this book to impact or influence your world. And it was, uh, those are my words, not yours. Yours are much more elegant. It was basically it was like to, to, to influence. Is, oh. Yeah, and I think it was third, number third or fourth, um, number three or four. But what I love about the way you write and the promise that you made in the book is that it's not seen as a negative. I think when we think about influencing our environment, and it's a natural... Uh, potentially cynical part of some of us that would say, oh gosh, well, if, if, if you're trying to influence the world, you're trying to change the normal course of history, and therefore that's your ego, that's, um, you know, that's the, the um, arrogance part, of your, part yeah. of your personality. But that's not the case in the book. You talk about it as a positive thing to be able to influence your world. Can you talk to us about that promise and what you had in mind? Yeah, I mean, I, th I find that people are really hypocritical. It's a lot of bullshit to feel guilty about that. Because by our nature as a social animal, every single fucking part of my language, fucking yeah. thing that you do, you are influencing people. Yeah. If you're trying not to influence them, you are influencing <laughs> them to not be, have influence. Yeah. If you're acting like the saint, and oh, I'm not gonna be involved in your life, I'm just gonna listen to you, man, you know, all that other crap. That's a form of influence, yeah. right? You can't get out of the game. You can't suddenly withdraw from the social game. You are influencing people, whether you're conscious or not. And the feeling that you have no ability to influence people is actually the most miserable sensation that a human being can have. Your son or daughter, they're acting out. You have no power to change their behavior. There's nothing you can do. How helpless you feel. They're gonna grow up and be a monster and you can't do anything about it. That boss who's driving you crazy, that psychotic boss who's toxic and narcissist and you can't get them to stop harassing and abusing you, man, you're gonna bring that home with you every single day. It's gonna make you miserable. And sick the and tired, yes. The fact that you have some great idea for a film and you can't interest anybody in your idea because you're so self-absorbed that you're not able to make the effort to find out what they want and what, what the financier, what their self-interest is, you're gonna be un really unhappy and resentful. You may pretend to yourself that you're some kind of saint, that you don't have these desires, but unconsciously you feel deep wells of resentment and bitterness that you can't influence the people around you. So number one, stop the denial and admit that you want the ability to have some kind of power over people. If your spouse 
has some really obnoxious form of behavior, you want them to stop it. But if you sit there and you say, honey, stop doing this, they're gonna get defensive and angry. And they're gonna end up probably just doing more of what irritates you. So you have to learn the language of influence. How can you begin to influence people once you're honest with yourself that you want to? And so I maintain the people around you are naturally defensive and resistant. We all know that. We've, we have our own lives to take care of. We don't want to have all these other people bothering us with their own problems, right? So the person you're trying to stop their irritating behavior or an interest in your film idea is resistant and defensive from the very beginning. But you don't see it that way. You think they should just love your idea and give you $10 million to finance it because you're so brilliant. Stop that and realize that it's the opposite. They have no reason in the world to be interested in you at all to alter their behavior. You have to enter their world, their psychology, their way of seeing things. And I show you in, this, in chapter seven about confirming people's self-opinion that people have an idea about themselves. It's extremely important. We're talking about that inner voice. Yeah. That idea that people have about themselves, I'm not being cynical because it's, it's me included, is that I'm basically a good moral person. Nobody, even the most wicked person, likes to think that they're evil, right? We all think that we're good. We all like to think that we're autonomous, that we act on our own willpower, that we're not manipulated, right? And we want to believe that we're rational, that our decisions come from thinking and intelligence. If you go into a situation where you make people feel the slightest bit defensive about their own opinion about themselves, a door will close that will never open again, and all your attempts to influence will be, will be for nothing. So you have to understand that you have to calm people down and make them feel comfortable with who they are. You have to validate their sense of their self-opinion and who they are. It's not bullshit, it's not deception. Validating people for their own qualities is an extremely important thing because think of how little you get it in life. Think of how rare it is that somebody comes up to you and says, you know, Chase, you're really a really decent, nice person. You're very empathetic. I really appreciate it. How often do you get that? Not often. <laughs> yeah. We want that. And it's not bullshit because everybody does have something that's, that's yeah. worth you know, validating. Yeah. So when you do that, when you enter their world and you realize what they're insecure about and what they need validation for, they're gonna be more on your side. And then you have power to influence them. When you have that rebellious teenage son who's doing the opposite of everything you tell them, if you go into there, you fall for the trap of telling them again to stop rebelling, that's gonna make them rebel even more. Yeah. You enter their world and you make it so, you give them reverse psychology. You say, oh, it's fine, whatever your son's name, to go do what you're doing. It's fine, I approve of your rebellious attitude. Suddenly, rebelling doesn't seem cool anymore because you've given it license, and now they're gonna, maybe gonna try and do something different. Understand the psychology of influence. It's an extremely valuable tool, and there's nothing evil at all about it. Get rid of your hypocritical guilt. Is, the main message of that chapter. That's an incredible piece of wisdom right there. Okay. That um, I find that that is a very popular point of view among creators. 
that there's a desire to put something out in the world, but who am I? I haven't lived a tumultuous life. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have all these extenuated circumstances, and therefore I have nothing to say. And there's a uh, an inward guilt that I sense in hearing people talk about that a, a repressed, um, not not necessarily ability, but repressed. Um, they believe that they don't have the ability or that, that it is a dirty word to try and um, imprint their beliefs on the world. And to me, it's this, it's this radical shame because it's a, it's a lack of a gift that the world's no longer gonna right. receive if you're not putting your stamp on the world. Right. And now, what, about, what would you say to the concept of, oh, we're not all special snowflakes? I'm trying to come from a different perspective, but. I want to hear Robert Robert Greene's approach to: Are you a special snowflake? Because you you've made some arguments in the book that are, hey, we're all basically animals, and we can look at our history and do the math. But then we're also talking about, you know, seize your opportunity, take advantage of the skills that you have, and if you don't have them, develop them. Well, it's a bit of a paradox, and you put your finger on it, so I need to answer that. So on the one hand. We have common qualities that come from our human nature. We're all cut from the same cloth. Our DNA and our, and our brains are wired a very particular way as human beings. It's not the same way that birds or dogs are wired. We're human. On the other hand, the paradox is that each individual is an individual, has a unique quality. So your brain may be wired similarly to other people, but it's wired ever so differently enough, right? No two brains are exactly the same. Your DNA is never been, there'll never be the same DNA of Chase Jarvis ever in the past or in the future. It's impossible. It's unique to you, right? Your parents and your experiences as you're three, four, five, or six are completely unique. Unless there's some alternate universe out there, there's nobody alive who's ever had exactly your experiences with your parents, your family. Therefore, even though you're wired and you have common qualities, there is some unique spark to you, something unique about you, right? And that uniqueness is the source of your power. If you just simply let yourself become who other people are, if you just simply become like other people and the group, you have no power. Everybody, you know, everybody else can do the same thing that you can do, so why you? Your uniqueness, what makes you weird, what makes you different, what makes you peculiar, is your source of power. And think of anybody in the world who has ever had tremendous success or impact in the arts or the sciences, an Albert Einstein, a Steve Jobs, a Pablo Picasso. There's nobody else out there like them. They're weird. They manage to stay true to their uniqueness and mine it for something special. You have that power as well but you, you're not mining it. Mastery uh, is the entire chapter on that. And in this book, I have an entire chapter about your purpose in life. We're not born with a sense of our purpose. It's something that we need to develop. And going through life without any sense of purpose, aim, wandering aimlessly through careers, etc., is gonna be a source of depression and misery. Having a sense of purpose and direction gives energy to every single thing that you do. And I want you to go back and realize who you are that makes you unique. Not, what, not all the emotions that make you want to fit into the group, 
and conform and be accepted, but what makes you weird and different? You, the, the, the tastes that you have that are not like your friends, the desires that you have that your friends don't seem to share. Don't be afraid, don't be ashamed of them. They are the source of your power and you need to connect to them. So I want you to go back and try and know yourself, which is the source in ancient Greek of all wisdom, know thyself. Who are you? What were you like as a child? What were the things that, the things that you were attracted to that you've since lost contact with? Were you attracted to words, to physical motion, to mathematics, to music, to something very peculiar? When Steve Jobs was six years old, he was walking with his father in Sunnyvale, California, and they passed an electronic shop, and his eyes just lit up by the beautiful design of these weird electronics gadgets. And his path was set for the rest of his life, his course was set, that he would be interested not in technology, not in design, but in the confluence of design and technology, because he liked the visuals of those, those products. Things like that happened to you when you were five or six years old, but you've forgotten about that. So you are a, a snowflake, you're just either denying it or running away from it or not physically trying to, you know, mine what that is. And, you know, I want you to be aware of what you don't like in life because that's another sign of your uniqueness. I learned early on in my life that I love words and language and I needed to be a writer. And I also learned that I hate large corporations working in an office. I hate office politics. I hate all the bullshit. I learned when I was 23 or 24, I cannot work with other people. I have to be on my own. Well, that's another sign of what makes you unique. Maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you, need, you like being around and working with other people. And the other thing is, once you discover what makes you unique, I call it kind of a frame of reference. You love mathematical patterns. You love working with other people, social situations. You love words or whatever, or, or images. Okay, now you're 21. Go out and explore and have some fun and be adventurous. Don't immediately go into law school. Don't immediately get a job, a well-paid job. You're young, you don't need a lot of money. Young people can live, you know, sleeping on the floor with friends. It's the only time in your life it's ever gonna be like that. Within that framework of what interests you, go out and explore and develop skills in different areas and try your hand at this and that and that. In the 21st century, that is an incredible power that we have with all the information and knowledge at our disposal. Go out and, you know, it's like a smorgasbord out there. Don't get carried away with trying things that are irrelevant. Everything I tried was a job that ended up enriching my experience as a writer. I worked in journalism, I worked in Hollywood. I also had jobs working in a detective agency, which taught me an incredible amount about people and psychology. So my motto in life is everything is material. Everything I experienced was material from my writing. Whatever your field is, go out and have a gamut of experiences. If you love music, try your hand at writing music, at performing, at producing, whatever it is, different forms of music, different instruments. Then by the time you're 28 or 30 years old, an opportunity will come, a light will go on in your head where you go, you know, I can take those different experiences and turn them into a business 
or a, a band or whatever that's not like anything out there because it's known fact when you're the ages between 28 and 35 are your prime creative period in life. The younger you are, the more creative you are, the more your mind is freer and looser. You're now at a point where you can take all those experiences and create something really powerful and unique. But if you've wasted your time, if you've just wandered around aimlessly, it won't matter, no matter what opportunities come your way, you won't be prepared to seize them. So that's sort of my way of answering the paradox that you presented me. Wow, that is a lesson, that is a, that's a, that is a book, that's your next book right well, there. Well, that was mastery, really. Yeah. Discover your life's task. Yeah, the, um, um, well, thank you for addressing it in this, in this book as well. Yeah, I did. Congratulations on the book. It oh, is, thank you it so is much. A phenomenal, phenomenal piece of art. Thank you. Uh, and having read 300 books, you said, to prepare for it? Over 300. Over 300. <laughs> Thank you for reading 300 books on our behalf. I feel like I got it all downloaded into my brain. Uh, the book is The Laws of Human Nature. Uh, thank you, Robert Green, for being on the show, for being a, a, a member of this community. And it's an honor to, to read the work that you're putting out there in the world and to, to be a friend. Well, thank you, Chase, for giving me the opportunity to share it. I appreciate it, man. Appreciate you. Okay. Next time. Yep, definitely. Thank definitely. you. Thank you. Jim. And have a good one, y'all. Thanks again for paying attention. Hope to see you again, hopefully tomorrow. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn. So check that out. They're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet. All right. Until again, uh, probably tomorrow. I hope I'll hear you. I'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and I'll look for your comments on the internets. Bye.